Hi, everyone. Oh, no, some of you Burwood people didn't go into Burwood. Gemma, are you alone there? I No, Ruckmeal's here. No. <laughs> oh, hi, Ruckmeal. Hi. We're the two lone Burwood oh, students. Say again, sorry? We're the two lone Burwood students. Yeah, so I have investigated some options and I am not getting anywhere with improving the technology. So this kind of seems the easiest way, but I totally appreciate that you guys, many of you, like it's useful to go in and be in the room together. So please do keep doing that if you want to, if that's what you need to get out of bed or whatever. Um, yeah, keep doing that. Um, Rachmiel, do you have your laptop? Cameron may or may not be joining us online today. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I've got Halen here in Geelong. He's just I'm joining. He's just about to join. Hi, Lucy. Hello. It's nice to see you close up rather than from a distance. <laughs> it's um yeah, it's very irritating. I did feel a little better that some of my colleagues reported that in their giant lecture theatres with four hundred first year, first trimester students, their technology also didn't work, um, which is pretty catastrophic and very stressful. So at least there's not 400 first year students with no idea how university works going, what is this place? You know, just wait another minute. Halen, hi. Fancy seeing you here. <laughs> All right. Hi, Rachmiel. Nice to see your face. <laughs> All right. So you guys, Gemma and Rachmiel, you just need to go one at a time if you're going to unmute. And has just one of you got the volume on there? Yep, that would be me. Come All right. Loud speakers. So we're, we're good to go. You guys are comfortable. Great. All right, so I wanna say something about the assessment. So I'm so sorry that the, so I'm not, oh, hello, little cats. Um, so I'm so distracted by cats. Okay, so um, I'm so sorry that the cloud side is not clear. I don't actually, I'm not unit chair of the unit, so I don't actually organize the cloud site. And it is shared between five different staff. It's not designed to be shared and it's incredibly tedious. Um, like there's like 10 extra steps I have to go through with every single thing I post so that only you guys see it and not all the other groups. Like it's it's a bit difficult. So I'm really sorry about that. But I just want to clarify what you need to submit. So you need to submit one Word document that has your annotations and your essay plan. And you need to submit it in the assessment one folder that has our name on it. So it's like politics, IR, etc. Is that clear? Does that... Is it, does anyone have any questions about that? Uh, yeah, just with yep. that 
Um, so, like, because it was due on Friday. Yeah. And, like, we submit it, it will be late. That's fine. Don't worry about yeah. that. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. The other thing I was going to say is that the next step is that I am going to mark all of your beautiful work. And then we are going to have in week eight. The next week is Easter. Uh, there's an echo somewhere. Um, Rachmiel, could you mute yourself? There we go. Thank you. So um, you don't have to turn your camera off. Sorry, I just pressed everything. <laughs> okay. She's <laughs> a heartbreak in my voice. No, don't leave us. Um, so um, next week is Easter. I'll be on leave, so I won't be available next week. I'm going horse riding, which will be very nice. So um, the following week is week seven. So we'll have our second Foucault class. The week after that is week eight. We have no class that week. And instead, we will have these one-on-one -on -one consultations. So I will, um, depending on how I go for time, like I think as probably many of you have realised, our workloads are incredibly squeezed this year, like more than they ever have been, which is really saying something. So I'm going to do my best to get them back to you before then, but it might be that you get them back in week eight, um, but it will still be within three weeks of when you submitted. And then I've got half an hour with each of you one-on-one -on -one, to talk through your plan and try and improve it. So it's not trying to get everyone up to a HD or whatever. It's basically looking at the plan you have and trying to get you to like the next level from wherever you are. Um, and I really enjoy those. Like I do not get workload allocation for that. That is something I do free of charge and basically voluntarily. So, um, and I do that because it's really rewarding process and your essays, like your work is just going to really be just, really enriched by um, having gone through this process of drafting and then getting feedback and then doing something kind of stronger. So one thing that I you are going to see this week is I'm going to send out um, some kind of notification, probably on the news um, item on the cloud, to um, book in a time with me. Um, Burwood people, do you want to do it face-to-face? -face? That would be my preference. Yes, please. Like you could come into my office, like in the olden days. Yep. Okay. And Geelong people, I will come up here because I need to come up here to see my grandma anyway. So I'll come up here. And then on the day that I'm in Geelong, I'll probably do um, the rest of you online. Um, so just keep your eyes peeled. And it's like first in best dressed in terms of the slots that will be available. So um, if you can just get back to me when I send that out, that'd be super. Any questions about that? No, cool. All right. So let's get going on Foucault. How did you all find it? Oh, wow. Okay. Anyone? Uh, it was interesting. Yep. There are two words that I often ban. I haven't banned them yet, but I will ban them for your essays. Highlight is one of them. And interesting is another because they don't say anything. You are allowed to use them in class, but you will not be allowed to use those words in your essay. What was interesting about it? Um, the argument was um, just, I guess, 
the, the whole arguments that, that he made were interesting in that they were, I guess, novel to, to me. Um, yeah. um, it's not to say I necessarily agreed with it. Um, there's yep. significant points of disagreement, but, um, but um, it was definitely interesting. Um, yeah. It was thought-provoking. Um, it's just that uh, the basic idea that power is more than um, what we traditionally see as power, that is pretty... Uh, well proven especially the the lovely example of how in the medical field how just simply truth had changed versus how they they perceived you know the body um as disease coming from inside the body or from outside the body and that sort of thing that just the change of framework just changed exactly how they how they see anything that that was very very interesting is i think that the biggest issue i had is the leap from that to power was a it's a very big leap um very, very big leap. Um, um, so I really, um, I sort of focused on that to understand how you get from one to the other. But, um, but yeah. Yeah. Anyone else want to share their reflections? Let me rephrase. Could someone else please share their reflections? Um, I'm happy. To share, um, I actually I actually found this week's reading uh, really fulfilling um, because it connects with what I wanted to do for the essay because I think um, Gill is very Foucauldian and her perspective on power, so it was actually really good to have that framework when reading it because I could immediately go, this is where I'm starting from, this is where the context that I'm reading in, and this is where I want to end up to be able yeah. to explain and understand where she's coming from. So that I think that was really helpful in framing the reading this week for me. Yeah, good. Good. All right. Well, we might get going. The rest of you need to say something at some point today, just a heads up. Otherwise, I'll start doing that thing where I call on you individually, which I know you all love so much. So um, we're going to, I'll do what I always do and run through the um, format of the lecture. So as usual, I'm going to start with biography and content. So you can get a sense of how his life might have shaped his thinking. And as usual, in the second part of the lecture, I'm going to talk about the central problem that drove his, uh, his theorization of power. In the fourth section, I'm going to run through three features of Foucault's theory of power. One is that it is more or it is better sort of thought of as an analytic than a theory. And I'll explain what I mean by that. The second is that it is relational. Where have we heard that before? Marx, thank you, Halen. Um, and the third is that he sees power as productive as opposed to repressive. Um, and then in the fourth part of the lecture, I'm gonna talk about the significance and implications of this approach to power for two realms. One is subjectivity and the other is truth. So those are the two readings like you all choose between the subject and power or truth and power. So we're going to talk about that. So first, biography and context. Second, his central problem. Third, three features of his theory of power. And fourth, what it means for subjectivity and truth. All right. So the first part of the lecture about who he was. Um, so I think you all know he was, you know, he was a French philosopher slash social theorist slash historian. He sort of um, was one of these sort of disciplinary, he, he didn't belong kind of neatly in any particular discipline. Um, 
And I think it's important to understand the kind of academic that he was. So he was what we call a public intellectual. So he was concerned with what Gordon says. Um, so I have those texts in this particular edited book. It's quite a good one. Can't really, hang on, let me just fix my background here. Um, because I do this to you all the time. Um, okay. So this book, it's an edited book of his essential works on power. There's a few of these on different kind of dimensions of Foucault's work. And this one has a really nice introduction um, by Gordon about Foucault's thinking about power. And Gordon says that Foucault is concerned with delineating and enacting quote, the vocation of philosophy and the public role of the truth teller, right? So he saw himself as not just doing his work like within academia, but as having a kind of public duty to discuss, you know, and sort of um, share and make people aware of the kinds of ideas that he was developing. So in his life, he spoke publicly or wrote, you know, about a very broad range of issues, including abortion, the death penalty, judicial scandals, um, revolts in Spain, Poland and Iran, political extradition, law and order policy, and what sometimes is called boat people, so you know, refugees or asylum seekers coming across from Africa to the south of France. Um, he wrote about legislation against dangerous minorities, um, and about concentration camps, right? So he was very interested in like a very broad range of political issues. He wasn't just a theorist. It can be hard to lose. It can be hard to remember that when you're reading him sometimes because he's so dense and he writes in this like really pretty inaccessible scholarly way. But um, I think it helps to remember that he was committed to understanding and intervening in these kinds of issues. His aim and style was to generate doubt and discomfort. Right? He, unlike, for example, Arendt, who last week like really neatly rounded up all of these things, and we talked about how she has some of these deep contradictions and these sort of unfinished ideas, partly because she's trying to wrap everything up into these neat categories, right? Foucault didn't do that. He wasn't interested in resolution of that kind. He was interested in generating doubt and making us sort of feel unsettled and unsure. He studied um, as a student and as a scholar, predominantly French thinkers. So he was quite parochial um, in that sense. Um, he was gay in a time when that was still problematic in many circles, he, you know, he certainly when we talk about legislation against dangerous minorities, that's partly what he was concerned about, homophobia. Um, but he had much more to offer, like you shouldn't be tempted to interpret him as a gay theorist, right? Sometimes when we know a fact like that about someone's identity, we interpret everything through that lens. But his work is much, much broader. He's not just a queer theorist or a queer activist, right? He had much more to say than just sort of this kind of one political area. Um, he died in the early 1980s. So um, 
in academia and in kind of the intelligentsia in France at that time, everyone was pretty left wing, right? Like most people were pretty left wing, um, in particular Marxist. Um, and he wasn't, right? So he had what we might call socially progressive views, for example, against homophobia and in favour of, you know, a right to abortion. But um, he wasn't a leftist in the Marxist sense which was unusual at the time. So we've talked before about May 1968. What happened in May 68? In Paris? Uh, that was that uprising of students, yeah. Students and? Oh, and the and labor, the yeah. uprising of students and labor. That's and right. uh, where they could have taken over the government, but they didn't. That's right. So this was a, like a really pivotal time. It, you know, it was one of the things that influenced the rent writing on violence. Um, uh, and obviously being French, it was particularly significant for him. He was not actually in France at the time. He was in Algeria when that happened, which was at the time a French colony. Um, but, uh, you know, that certainly, I think, kind of having a sense of, um, how sort of vibrant the, the political and intellectual left was at the time is important for understanding the significance of what Foucault was saying about the left. Okay, so the second part of the lecture, what was his problem then? If he's sort of socially progressive, but he's not a Marxist, and he's interested in this kind of broad range of political problems, how are we to understand what his kind of main central concern was, right? So let's just recap, what was Machiavelli's main problem? Leah? Um, instability in Italy at the time. Yeah. Um, what was Marx's main problem, Andrew? Um, like, I don't know how to explain it like neatly, but like capitalist owners having power over their workers. Yeah. Not power over, but yes. Yeah, yeah. Relation of power. Yep. Yeah. Um, so class struggle. What was Arendt's main problem? Gemma? Oh, no. <laughs> the one I understand the least. Oh, yes. <laughs> what was she writing about her first book? Oh, my God. That was, it's on, on violence is not the first one, is it? Or is it? No. Okay. Remember we talked about she was a German Jew? Yeah. No, I do remember. It just slightly went over my head. I remembered the... Don't overthink it. Her central problem, what was the political problem in the world that motivated her work? Don't okay. overthink it. Was it just the Holocaust? I yes. Okay. <laughs> Totalitarianism, right? right. Stalinism and Nazism. Yeah, sometimes you can overthink it. I don't know why. <laughs> so the main problem for Foucault was quite different, right? It was quite a different kind of a problem. He wanted to create what Gordon calls new ways of political seeing. It was a more kind of meta problem, like a higher order problem than the ones that we've just discussed. So in The Truth and Power, he says, and I quote, the way power was exercised 
concretely and in detail with its specificity, its techniques and tactics was something that no one attempted to ascertain. Right, so he's talking here about people like Arendt and so on. Like they're not they're not trying to ascertain the specificity, techniques, and tactics of power. They're doing bigger picture theorizing. He wants to do more micro theorizing. He says they contented themselves with denouncing it in a polemical and global fashion, as it existed among the other in the adversary camp. Right. So, for example, Marxists considered liberals or capitalists to be exercising problematic forms of power. It was used not unlike we're currently seeing in our election campaign. Far more, it was used, the concept of power was used far more to criticize others than to reflect on the general workings of the world, including oneself and one's own sort of political group. Marxists condemned capitalists, structuralists condemned positivists, but nobody looked for power in their own camp, right? So he wanted to capture all the workings of power, including those that had been largely neglected. And Rachmil, you said at the start, oh, well, we all know that now. That was not the case when he was writing, right? Part of the reason why we all now know that power exists in all these micro places is because of Foucault. Right, it's not actually not something that was widely written about before his work. I'm not saying he's the only person who ever wrote about it, but he did like all of that sense that we look for power in daily social life. He was a huge influence on that in, in terms of political thought. So I'm gonna run through three particular areas that influence that were heavily influential in French academic life at the time and which he thinks didn't properly account for power. One is enlightenment, the second is Marxism and the third is structuralism. So Marxism, enlightenment, other way around, enlightenment, Marxism and structuralism. So what was the enlightenment? Hamish? Um, don't overthink it sorry I said um and then my brain just <laughs> there is no connection from my brain to my mouth right now um, it'll come the enlightenment okay. was when people started sort of moving away from like religious explanations towards like academic and scientific explanations yep, yep. where did it sort of begin uh, no idea. France. What other ideas do we associate with the Enlightenment? Palin? French Revolution ideas. Oh, the, the... What was the slogan of the French Revolution? Something about it. Contract, the social, the contract. social contract, yep, that we can cooperate with each other in order to create a democratic society, yep. Liberty, equality, fraternity. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Did any of you do revolutions in year 12 and study? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Me too. And I did it way before any of you guys. So if I can remember, you can definitely remember. So those are the kinds of ideas, right? Liberty, equality, fraternity, rights, democracy, social contract, progress, secularism, etc. Similar to modernity, 
the Enlightenment is often sort of talked about as one of, and the, alongside the Industrial Revolution, as the sort of beginnings of modernity. Um, so Foucault was contesting the idea, the Enlightenment idea, of social improvement, progress, and order. Right, we've absolutely talked about that several times now in this unit. You can see some of you nodding. Good. So he was contesting that. He was questioning that morality and science were in some way free of power. And in fact, he developed a sort of general philosophy that this combination of moralizing, science, and power was actually an alliance that manifested in suspicion, vigilance, and doubt over deviance. Right, so all this moralizing and science led to us constantly looking for cases of deviance, people who were mad, people whose sexuality was wrong, people who were criminal, people who were unwell. And he wanted to say, actually, there might be some power in that, though we need to investigate. It's not free of power. It's not taking us beyond or past problems of power. The second area that he wanted to sort of call into question was Marxism. As I said, May 68, et cetera, like very influential um, intellectual and political tradition in France at the time. So if we recall some of the key tenets of a Marxist approach to power, right? As Andrew said, the key problem Marx was concerned with is class antagonism, this kind of struggle between the bourgeois capital-owning class and the working proletariat. And the key injustice was, starts with E, Lucy. E. Hmm. All I can think of now is enlightenment. Because <laughs> that starts with E. <laughs> it does. It is egg and like a bunch of other words. <laughs> what did Marx say was the relation between the capitalist and the worker? It was a relation of exploitation. Thank you, Halen. Right? So power for Marx existed in... The relationship between two people often involving exploitation? Yes, between two classes. Sorry. Yes. Can you guys hear Halen when he's talking? You I'm might have to talk. Up. Yeah, or just speak up so it comes through to mine. Because then if you turn yours on, we're going to get an awkward echo yeah, situation. Yeah. Um, so power for Marx existed in the relation of exploitation, right? It existed in the context of a capitalist mode of production. And what he wanted to transform was that relation of production. For Foucault, he didn't disagree that the relation of exploitation was exploitation and that, that that was a side of power. But he said it only deals with part of the problem. Right? So what Marx proposed, this like alternate relation in this socialist society or communist society, where no one privately owns the means of production, there's no private property, for Marx and for Marxists, that would be this kind of utopia, free of power. And Foucault did not buy that. 
He said, Marxism does not deal adequately with the problem of power within a Marxist society. He was also critical of the concept of ideology. I'm not going to get into that because it's just a lot, right? But we might come back to it a little bit when we talk about the truth and power. Okay, the third sort of intellectual tradition that he came up against was um, structuralism, right? Probably most of you have never heard of it before. I myself am not going to even remotely claim to understand it very well. Um, it's definitely out of fashion, but was very fashionable in France at the time. Um, through sort of the 50s through to the 70s in particular. And its touchstone was the work of an early 20th century sociolinguist called Ferdinand de Socha, S-A-U-S-S-U-R-E, if you wanted to sort of follow this up. And so he was the founder of structural linguistics, which was basically this sort of approach to studying language and meaning that saw it um, in a scientific way. And it believed that language was this kind of closed system and you could develop these scientific methods in which to study and map it, right? And that was very influential. Like when French social theorists um, and researchers of various kinds were trying to understand the world, many of them did it through this lens of kind of seeing all meaning as arising through language and language being this kind of fixed and stable system that you can study in a scientific way, right? Um, Foucault didn't buy that either, partly because sociolinguists of this kind or structuralists didn't, they weren't willing to admit that there are questions of power associated with the way in which we produce meaning and use language, right? They saw it as this kind of objective and neutral territory. They also weren't really able to properly explain how language might change over time, how words come to have different meanings. Think about things like um, the way in which certain minority communities reappropriate words that had previously been terrible insults. Think about rap music and a particular word that appears in that very prevalently that used to be exclusively an insult, it changed, got reappropriated, now has a different meaning. It's a very complex meaning, it changes over time, etc. right? So isn't, very... isn't that simply a different um, uh, field? That's sem semiotics, isn't it? Um, maybe that's just not what sociolinguistics linguists were interested in, um, in how it changed it. His point is that the structuralists as a group of sociolinguists they believed that was a very influential school of thought and they believed that these things were sort of fixed and stable. I'm not talking about semiotics. Um, but my, my, I think my question is that they existed at the same time in the field. So surely they would have been aware that there were people who were studying the change in meaning at the same time. It's just hard to understand how a group of people wouldn't understand that language changes and language usage changes. That's, that's I think that's the uh, crux of the question, I think. So then you and Foucault would be on the same page about that. Yeah. So he positioned himself against these schools of thought, against Enlightenment, against Marxism, against structuralism. 
right? Because he was saying, though they may have particular insights, particularly Marxism, I think he was, you know, kind of politically sympathetic to the broad project of Marxism. Um, he thought that they all ignored all of these important forms of power that existed, as he said, in their own camp, but also in society more generally. And that by constantly sort of conceptualising power as something that other people exercised, they were misunderstanding the nature of power itself, right? So he wanted to instead be able to diagnose the forms of power that he saw as ubiquitous in all relations all the time. And his point was partly that techniques of power can be deployed for many uses by many groups including those who are claiming to be very progressive, socialists and communists and liberals, not just fascists and Nazis, right? And in the words of Gordon, in the introduction to that book, he says, the apparent neutrality and political invisibility of techniques of power is what makes them so dangerous. Right, so the sense in which this power kind of circulates all the time and we just, we can't even see it. And as long as we can't see it and we accept it as just neutral and just sort of what happens, then it's quite dangerous because it can sneak up on us. Right, so coming back to that point I made earlier, his style and his aim is to generate doubt and discomfort to make us, kind of vigilant and suspicious so that we don't get snuck up upon. Snuck up upon? I don't think that's grammatically correct. So that form, problematic forms of power don't sneak up on us. Questions? So, like, in terms of Marx, so what, like, I get that, you know, um, he, he only saw it as dealing with part of the problem, but what, what didn't he see it as addressing in terms of, like, it only looks at that particular issue and not every other issue? Yep. Is that, yeah. Yep. So many of you have kind of raised this. For example, um, gender. Like what does Marx have to say about gender dynamics and relations of power between genders? Not very much, right? But also, um, so Foucault had the benefit of writing quite a bit later than Marx and saw Stalinist USSR. You can't say there's no power there, right? There's even Machiavellian forms of power going on there. So, um, so there's sort of several fronts on which he thinks Marxism hasn't got it right. One is that antagonisms and relations of power between groups are not only between classes. That's one. Second is that even people claiming to be Marxist and to enact a sort of Marxist solution to, to the social world are still exercising power, including like terribly abusive forms of power, but not only terribly abusive form. And the other thing is that he thinks, which is a point I sort of gestured to about ideology, 
Marxism is an ideology. It, it claims to have a sort of, it's not just a theory, it's also an ideology. It claims to have, it's making a truth claim about the world, it claims to have a grand theory about the nature of society in general. That is true. And Marx doesn't buy any claim to truth of that kind, which we're going to get to later. Does that help answer the question, Andrew? Were there other things that you had in mind that Marxism might be missing in terms of power? They don't have to be, but just... I don't think so. Like, um, I, like, I don't know. I kind of see it from Foucault's point of view, like that there is more than just that, you know, relationship between... Um, the relational forms of power. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, seeing it from other methods. And, like, is the way I'm understanding it correct in terms of, like, so this is more, like, a constructivist approach and doesn't really have a grand theory. It's yeah. more, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely an anti-grand theory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's grand theory? We haven't really talked about that term. It's actually a pretty specific term. Um, doesn't it like prescribe, you know, how the world should be or the way in which the world operates and therefore like we should operate in this yeah. way? The whole world. Yeah. Yeah. Hence grand. Right. But it is, it's not like it is. It's one of these academic terms that has a specific meaning, but in this case, it is actually what you think it is, unlike some other academic terms that have a specific meaning that may or may not relate to what any normal person might think it should mean. It does just mean like a big mega theory, but it, but it is it is used in academic work in a specific way to refer to that confidence of um, that sort of totalizing confidence. Right, that it that it it is explaining everything. It's not just explaining violence or, um, you know, power or like this gender or whatever. It's explaining like everything in all circumstances. And there's not many of those left, right? Partly because of Foucault. Yeah, but Marxism was one of the big ones. Realism is another big one, depending on. I'm not an IR theorist, but depending on who you're reading and the particular way in which they use it, sometimes it's referred to as a grand theory as well. Okay, so third part of the lecture. Three key features of his theory of power. What did I say they would be, Rachmiel? Uh, sorry. Keeping everyone on their toes. Uh, that it's uh, it, it's sort of um, what he calls capillary, I think was one of the things you said, but not in those words. Nope. No? So at the beginning when I outlined the lecture, I said I was going to talk about three specific things. What did I say they would be? Uh, oh, sorry. Um, let me see if I wrote it down. There's a reason why I outlined the oh, lecture at the start. Sorry. <laughs> you'd be writing down the outline at the start. Like it should help you make sense of like where the lecture's going, what we're doing. Anyone else? Write it down. 
I can't remember the order. One of them was it was pro- power is productive rather than uh-huh. repressive. Yep. Um, did you say also that it's relational? Yep. And the third and one? The third one, I have no idea. All right. I'll give you two out of three points. Thank you, Leah. So the third one is that it is an analytic, not a theory, right? So we'll start there. What do I mean by that confusing term? So a theory is a sort of way of thinking about how a particular set of concepts fit together and tend to relate to each other. Right, so that involves identifying what your concepts are going to be, providing some working definitions of them, even if they're more conceptualizations than definitions, like they're a bit more kind of flexible and malleable, but got some sense of what they are, right? And you're trying to explain how they tend to relate to each other, right? So you sort of, you're, you're trying to provide an explanation. It may not be a grand theory, You may not be claiming to explain everything in all circumstances, but you are trying to explain something that is more than just an instance, but is a pattern. Right? He resists that. He resists that sort of temptation to be, if you like, kind of predictive and explanatory in a general sense. That makes sense. Why you would want to resist that? Not yet. Give me some facial expressions, people. Okay, Andrew and Lucy are laughing at me. <laughs> Does that make sense? Talk to me. I I understand it to be. Um kind of similar to the concept of a sensibility versus Mm -hmm. a theory. So using it as like a way to critique something and view something rather than a theory about something. Yeah. So an analytic, so where a theory tries to provide an explanation that is kind of generalizable, at least a little bit, depending on how modest your theory is, an analytic is exactly as Lucy said, it's, in a way, it's a way of approaching something rather than a way of explaining it, if that makes sense. So an analytic is a set of tools that you can use in a given situation to sort of explore, to explore it and to try to understand it. But you're exploring and trying to understand this specific problem, this specific situation. You're not taking a pre-existing set of concepts and a sense of how they relate to each other and like superimposing it. So it's kind of like it's a different attitude. It's more interested in specificity and context and it's more humble. Not that anyone would ever describe Foucault as humble, but the analytic is humble. Does that make more sense? 
So what you do with this analytic is rather than trying to explain what power is in every instance all the time, you look for specific effects of power in specific senses, not in abstract senses. You don't look at it in a totalizing way, the way Machiavelli or Marx did, and you don't look at it in a normative way, the way Arendt did. You don't kind of set out to look for it in any particular way at all. Couldn't it just simply be said that um, it's an inductive theory rather than a deductive one? It is inductive rather than inductive, but I wouldn't describe it as simple. No, I'm not saying that it is simple. I'm just saying that um, uh, you couldn't you just say it's a theory that is inductive in its nature rather than just uh, having to use the terms analytic versus theory? No. Because a theory is in and of itself, it is never, it can be inductively arrived at, but it is not. So he might, he might provide an inductive theory of the way power operates in the clinic in this period of time, but it's not a theory for how power operates everywhere all the time, right? So it's inductive in its specificity in a particular case, but if we want to take those insights and apply them to a study of development in Indonesia in the 21st century, then we're not, um, we're not just like mapping it over. We're not taking that theory and applying it. We're taking the tools he used and deploying them, but we might be arriving at something very different. Possibly very similar, but possibly very different. Do you guys all know the difference between inductive and deductive? forms of reasoning. Rachmiel, do you want to explain it? Uh, yes, so um, it, with uh, inductive reasoning, you look at uh, a bunch of, uh, to simplify, you look at a bunch of examples from there you try to draw a, a conclusion about um, how they all work, um, whereas deductive is where you have, an, or you try to get an idea, sorry, out of the many examples, whereas with uh, deductive, you have an idea already, and then you try to see if it fits the examples, the specifics, yeah. Yeah, like a hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah, whereas in inductive work, you look at what's in front of you and you allow meaning to emerge or conclusions to emerge, whereas in a deductive approach, it's more sort of top, like you, it's predetermined, you know what you're looking for and either you find it or you don't. Okay. So there's a stylistic difference between seeing power as a theory and seeing power as an analytic. And that's what I'm trying to get at here. So I want to read you this lengthy quote from the subject and power. It's from page 341 of my version, but I think you might have a different version, um, or different page numbers. So he says power, Foucault says power operates on the field of possibilities in which the behaviour of active subjects is able to inscribe itself. It is a set of actions on possible actions. It incites, it induces, it seduces. It makes easier or more difficult. It releases or contrives. It makes more probable or less. In the extreme, it constrains or forbids absolutely but it is always a way of acting upon one or more acting subjects 
by virtue of their acting or being capable of action. Power is a set of actions upon other actions. Right, so what he's saying there is power is not a force of coercion or constraint, except in its most extreme form. Most of the time, power is the stuff that circulates among us that makes us inclined to do certain things and less inclined to do other things. You could all be, you know, zooming in from bed in your pyjamas, right? But you're not inclined to do that, thankfully. Part of the reason Foucault would say that there are certain sources of power operating that require you to behave towards me, especially towards me because of the hierarchy, as much as I like wish it didn't exist, it does, but also towards each other in a way that is respectful. And the way we conceive of what counts as respectful includes not being in our pajamas with each other. Right? There's also shame operating there, right? There's a certain shame. I mean, I don't know what your pajamas are like, but like there's a sense in which if you walked outside in your pajamas, you might feel embarrassed, right? That is for Foucault, like that is a kind of a power. Don't do this to me, Sam. I'm in my pajamas. <laughs> I'm in my jammies. They've got dinosaurs on them. I've been outside this morning to get my bins in. <laughs> <laughs> really shaming me here. Oh, this is excellent. <laughs> this is excellent on several levels. I really did just laugh this morning. But also, um, we can talk about counter power <laughs> when we talk about why you are wearing your pajamas but this is it's actually a beautiful illustration right so I'm going to assume no one no one else is in their pajamas no okay so the point here is that for the vast majority of us we felt that we should wear clothes right particularly those of us who are not at home um Foucault's point is that power does never actually completely control us as Hamish has beautifully illustrated for us today. We laugh because it is funny, but it is actually also a very good point that like what he's talking about is that power is not this thing that always and every single time forces us to do ABC. It's something that kind of pushes us in a certain direction, right? It's different, it's more subtle. For example, you've got a hoodie on over that by the looks of things. You're not, like you're not sort of, you know, in a nightdress, right? Or some other like really inappropriate thing because the sense of inappropriateness is a source of power. Like that's a form of power. What we think is appropriate or inappropriate, acceptable or unacceptable, embarrassing or not. Like he's saying those are forms of power that circulate and that we reproduce as well. For example, I just shamed Hamish. I reproduced the norm that pajamas are unacceptable. Cats, however, are very acceptable. Do you see what I mean? Am I running away too far with this hilarious example that we've just been delivered? 
No, it's good. It actually helps a lot. <laughs> Thank you, Hamish. <laughs> okay. um, it reminds me of something very similar. I saw, uh, I can't remember where, um, but there was someone I think in the 70s that was writing about how, for example, um, we feel the need, a lot of us, most of us, I suppose, feel the need to stop at a red light, like in the middle of the night. There's no other cars, there's no one else, yet we still yeah. stop knowing that there's yeah. no danger and anything else. And it's very, very, very reminiscent of that. Um, exactly. Yep. Excellent example. Andrew, you were going to say something? Yeah. Um, so, like, would you say then that, like, different... So, while, like, that level of power may not work in that circum certain circumstance, you could use a different form of power and that may produce the result you're after. Not quite, right? So it's not, so what you're saying is like the result I'm after. It's not me alone who wants yeah. everyone to wear clothes, right? Yeah. Like it's not, I mean, it's not, there's no single person or even group or institution who is deliberately orchestrating a particular outcome. Yeah. But I, I'm saying like in terms of if you wanted to get a person to act in a certain way, yeah. So, like, you know, shame hasn't worked in that circumstance. Yeah. But something else may produce that result. Is that? Yep, that's definitely consistent with with what he would say. But the thing is, he's not interested in wanting to get someone to do something because yeah. who is it who's wanting that? Yeah, I get that. I think it's more. I'm trying to understand it in terms of like, there's different like forms of power yeah. and like different yeah. levels of it. Yeah. Yeah. That... Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Very many different. So there's very extreme forms, right? Yeah. Like I could, you know, expel Hamish from the class because this is just so unacceptable, you know, like there's very, very extreme forms. He rarely though talks about those. There's a passage okay. where he talks about, like, if you're in chains, for example. But the thing is, we already know that if you're inflicting violence on someone or you've physically got them in chains, we already actually know a lot about that exercise of power. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah that's whatever. But, like, what is it that's going on with the pyjama situation? Is there a form of oppression here that we need to reflect upon? That's what he... So it's not that it's... Um, that he thinks that those sort of forms of domination and like he reserves the word domination for like that really extreme exercise of power. Um, it's not that he thinks that doesn't exist or it's not important. It's that he thinks we've paid plenty of attention to that and we need to pay attention to the pyjama situation and other similar situations that shape our kind of daily lives in ways that might be much more oppressive than we, than we realised. Does that make sense? Yeah, Not so really. he's looking at like where it's less explicit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So there are two levels at which his attention, if you're going to adopt this analytic as a tool, there are two levels typically that you can use. One is a regime of practice. And most of his books, focus on a particular regime of practice. Psychiatry is a regime of practice, right? The penal system is a regime of practice. 
sexuality is a regime of practice. Medicine is a regime of practice. So it's like a particular um, a regime of practice is like it's not infinite. It's constrained to a particular thing, a particular usually there's usually like some problem at the heart of it. It's characterized, but so it's not infinite, but it can be very broad. So it could be made up of like a very large number of institutions, individuals, forms of knowledge, forms of expertise, subjects who exemplify it, etc. Right. So most of you will know about mental health, like what he called psychiatry, we would now refer to more broadly as mental health, as a regime of practice, right? It includes any of us who have ever suffered from any mental disorder, anxiety, depression, and, you know, more complicated ones. Anyone who's ever seen a counsellor or a psychologist or a psychiatrist, not only a psychiatrist, all the well-being stuff that we get told to do all the time, meditation apps, etc. Um, all of these kinds of things, not just the practice of psychiatry, these all form the regime of practice of mental health, right? So if we wanted to understand how power circulates there, we would want to be looking at all of these things. All of us who have suffered mental ill health and sought treatment, the different kinds of treatment, the discourses around it, the norms around it, the ideas of what counts as normal and abnormal, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Right. So that's one level at which you can do. You can use a Foucauldian analytic. Is a regime of practice. Another level is um, the self, and specifically like your individual subjectivity. These were the two levels at which he was mostly concerned. Right. So not concerned with society as a whole in general not concerned with the state, definitely not concerned with international relations, right, and relations between states in terms of war and security and so on. But you could at any point deploy the analytic to any of those things, right, to a particular part of social life. You could deploy an analytic to kind of discourses on peace and security but he's not interested so much in what's Russia doing to Ukraine as he is in like what sort of ideas and norms are being produced here, what is, you know, what is produced as normal and abnormal, what is encouraged, discouraged, etc. And in terms of the self, he was always very interested in how we constitute ourselves, but more specifically how we as selves are constituted by these relations of power in which we are always, always circulating. Right, so he doesn't have a single theory of subject formation. He would want to look specifically at what is a general pattern of subject formation among Australian university students, right? He's looking at that kind of level of specificity. And importantly, it's always for him very, very empirical. Right? If he wanted to look at university students, he would want to look specifically at you lot, and specifically at these institutions, these universities in this place, in this time. 
not he's not trying to form some general theory of university life everywhere all the time. Questions? Okay. So the second feature is like Marx, that power for Foucault was relational. It was not a possession, not a commodity, not something you can hold over someone else. So Gordon puts it this way, that power for Foucault is not a possession or substantive entity of any kind, independent of the relations through which it is exercised. So we don't analyze power in and of itself, not as a possession, but also not as a capacity. I don't have power over you. There is a relation of power between us constituted by the subject positions of, of lecturer and student, for example. But it's also not just the relationship between people, right? And this is where we start to move beyond what Marx meant when he said relational. So he was talking about the relations primarily between classes, right, between groups of people. But for Foucault, the relations that he's talking about are much broader. They're relations between many dimensions of our lives, right? So relations between you and me, but also relations between you, me, and the university, between you, me, the university, and the technology, between you, me, the university, and the labour market in which I'm supposed to be preparing you to go out into, right? between you, me, and the social expectations of what it is to have an honours degree. So it's not like it's all of those things, right? It's the discourses, expectations, norms, ideas, the materiality, right? The technology, the institutions. So it's looking at something much broader than what Marx was looking at. In the subject and power, for example, he describes power as being at play in the relation between Productive activity, communication, production, exchange of signs, training, domination, division of labour, hierarchy of tasks, etc. Like that's just one example of the kinds of things that he thinks about when he's thinking about the relations that we need to map. And they may be different in kind of any different regime of practice, which can make him feel a bit overwhelming. Nodding. Anyone else want to nod? Anyone else is like, yes, this is a lot. So he can be a bit overwhelming if you kind of just go, okay, he thinks power is everywhere all the time. Okay. So it's overwhelming on several levels, right? One is analytically, how the hell are you supposed to map all of this if it's everywhere all the time? And also as a person, as a human person, does this mean I am constantly subject to power everywhere I go all the time? Like, where am I in this? How can we be free if there is kind of power circulating all the time? We're going to get to that. Um, it takes a long time of sort of immersing yourself in his work 
and in other people who use him in order to be able to find a way through that sense of feeling overwhelmed, right? But it is possible. Like you can get there. Um, one way in which it is maybe more clear, if he can be unclear, is to, is to come back to this idea that power doesn't act on people. It acts on their actions. So our task as analysts, if we want to be Foucauldian analysts, is to ascertain what the relations are and how they shape our actions. Our choice to wear pajamas or clothes. What relations are at play in shaping that choice? I'm going to give you another example, other than the pajamas. Are you alive? Got a little half nod from Hamish. Do they, do, I don't have to, I can move on or I can give you another example. Give us another example, Sam. Okay, thank you, Gemma. Okay, I like a bit of assertiveness about what you need. So allow me to give you an example from my book that I'm writing. So my book that I am writing, I'm using Foucault as my sort of analytic in this book. The book is about political ethnicity in Kenya. Why, why is it that different ethnic groups um, have a tendency to be competitive with each other when it comes to politics and resources, but also can be um, can have much more solidaristic forms of relation with each other, right? That's the problem I'm looking at. And in order to examine that problem, I'm looking at the relation between a whole set of different things. The regime of practice that I'm looking at is the classification of ethnicity. Right, so how is it that people identify, through what forms are they identifying as Kikuyu, Kalenjin, Nubian, whatever. So I'm looking at particular practices. I'm looking at the census codes, the drawing of administrative boundaries around different districts and some particular legal categories. And I'm looking at the relationship between those categories and the bureaucrats who implement them and the citizens who get categorized by them and the ways in which the knowledge about how many people there are in which ethnic group gets used by the Ministry of Housing, by international researchers, by, you know, um, people responsible for vaccine rollout, by politicians, by political parties, by voters, right? And then I'm looking at the historical relations between those forms of knowledge and the colonial government and the particular forms of records that exist in the National Archives and the absence of those records in other forms of public life, right? And so what I'm doing is I'm not just looking at any of these things alone. I'm looking at when they all come together in this particular way, in this particular relation, what effects do we have? When they come together in these particular ways, we tend to get the effect that people from different ethnic groups feel they need to compete when they come together in these particular ways, they feel less like they need to compete. Right, so the analytical approach is not to come out and say, elite politicians are exploiting ethnic identity. I'm not ascribing particular people all the power to generate an ethnicized polity. I'm looking at the relations between all of the different forms of knowledge and the uses of those forms of knowledge that make 
ethnic competition possible and that make it more likely or less likely. More confused or less confused? I'm less confused. I'm just processing what you're saying. I probably look confused. <laughs> okay, I'll take a thinking face. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same. Just, just pondering, you know? Yep, pondering that a bit more. Mm -hmm. Anyone else? Need some feedback? Andrew, there's something on the tip of your tongue. I can see it. I don't, yeah, I'm not sure whether I'm more confused now because, like, I thought I understood it before. But, like, so... Yeah, maybe I understand it a bit more now. But, like, yeah, what I was trying to, like, figure out in my head is, like, still labelling it, but you're only doing it within that specific circumstance. You're not, like, doing it outside of that. Which That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really context-specific. I'm looking at, like, these really specific documents. The census reports from 1948, 62, 69, 79, 89, 99, 2009, 2019, and the particular archives around the archival So I'm going to move on then to the third feature, which is that power is productive. Okay. So we often think of power as repressive. In fact, we mostly in day-to-day -day life think of power as repressive. It makes us do things we didn't want to do or it stops us doing things that we want to do. Um, the time that Foucault was working was also French intellectual life at the time was also heavily influenced by Freud who had these um, theories of sexual repression. He's obsessed with the idea that we are, we are repressed and that all of our pathologies arise from a problem of repression. In political science, we're pretty obsessed with repression, dictators, autocrats, totalitarians, rulers, etc. Like we're very preoccupied with the idea of repression when we think about power. But Foucault was concerned not just with repression, like he does acknowledge that that's part of how power works. It makes us disinclined to do something, um, you know, disinclined to um, vote for someone from a different ethnic group, for example. But it also makes us inclined to do things. And that was what he thought we hadn't been paying enough attention to. What does it produce? What desires does it produce? What behaviours does it produce? What inclinations? And so the trick to getting your head around this idea is to move away from thinking about power as either 
positive or negative or good or bad, right? So Arendt thought about power as good, inherently good. It arose from people acting together in concert, right? If we look at Machiavelli, many of us would think the kind of power that he was talking about, if we adopt that superficial reading of him, was bad. It was a bad form of power. Might is right. We don't think that is a good form of power as a rule, right? But if you're going to take a Foucauldian perspective, power is neither good nor bad in any inherent way. It's not positive or negative. It's not liberating or repressive by definition. It can be either of those things. What we have to look at is what are the actual specific effects of power. For example, that people tend to vote ethnically, which has the unfortunate consequence of meaning that political parties don't have to develop any policies because they can rely on ethnic voting banks. Right, so if that is an effect of power, then we want to understand what forms of power are producing that effect. Right, and it's not just flat out coercion. No one is standing with a gun to anyone's head at the ballot box, right? Something else is going on there. So what is it? Um, so in The Truth and Power, Foucault says, what makes power hold good, what makes it accepted, is simply the fact that it doesn't only weigh on us as a force that says no. It also traverses and produces things. It induces pleasure, forms of knowledge and produces discourse. Right, so one of um, his most well-known examples, his, um, his last book, History of Sexuality, it was actually a three-part book, he made the argument that sexuality as an, a phenomenon is produced by power, right? So, He's, he looks specifically and sort of predominantly at the Victorian era in Europe at the time in that book. And this was a period in which um, there was a lot of obsession with sexuality, particularly in the church. So he, he has this lengthy discussion about the idea of the confessional, right? That people would come to church and they would go to confession and they would confess their deep, dark desires and all the kinky stuff that they wanted to do, all the people they wanted to sleep with that were not their wife, you know, and there sort of became this obsession with examining the interior life of people's sexual desires. And then later that was replaced by psychotherapy and Freudian psychotherapy in particular, a different form of confessional. You come into therapy, you lie on the couch, and again, you divulge and examine in minute detail what came to be called your sexuality, right? So there became all these ideas that started circulating around what was normal and abnormal, what was taboo, what was kinky and what was not, you know, what was normal, quote-unquote normal. All of these ideas sort of emerged during, you know, during this period. And there was a real attempt to repress during the Victorian era, there was a real attempt to repress sexuality. It was supposed to be 
just sex was supposed to be for the purposes of procreation, right? You weren't supposed to have desire or pleasure and certainly not any of the weird forms of it. But all of that obsessive talking about it and policing it and all of the social norms that emerged around it, Foucault argues, they produced the very phenomenon of sexuality. Before that, before it became this sort of endless topic of conversation and um, interventions of various kinds, it was just a, like, it wasn't a thing. It was just, people just did what they did and sexuality as a noun, as a practice, as an identity, didn't exist before then. It was all these sources and forces of power, discourses, practices that brought it into being. He says in The Truth and Power, when he's talking about his book on the history of sexuality, he says um, they tried to repress it, but the result was to produce it by dinning it into the minds of parents and children. Right, there was a particular obsession, for example, with making sure that children didn't masturbate during the night. Right, there was a lot of um, sort of practices that took place around like examining sheets and stuff like that to make sure that your children were not doing that. Right, which just made the children obsessed with thinking about it. So he says sexuality is far more one of the positive products of power than power was ever repressive of sex. And he doesn't mean that sexuality is positive or negative. He's not referring to any particular kind of sexuality. He's just referring to the notion that we have a sexuality, right? That it is a, it is a thing. And what he means here is that it is a product of these discourses around sexuality and all the associated behaviors, all the things that were said and done around it. Without those, we wouldn't have sexuality at all. We would just do what we do, but it wouldn't be this kind of thing. Does that make sense? You don't necessarily have to agree that he's right about that, but, but that is an example of what he means by power as productive, right? Even though it's very tempting to say the Victorian era was repressive of sexuality, it also produced sexuality. It did both at the same time. Okay. Questions before I move on to the next section? Okay. So then I want to talk yeah, about. Sorry, sorry. I was just finishing writing off something. Sorry, but, sorry, um, I, I do have something about that. Um, if, if, if the if the sex, sexuality is produced as a result of, you know, saying and doing things, whatever, it, isn't it? A little bit impossible to prove that contention because um, if something doesn't exist, if it's never talked about, well then, how do you know that something exists only because it's talked about? I mean, I mean, is there is there something in the world that we haven't spoken about that we haven't you know done things with such that we know that we can prove the contention? Uh, it's a little bit unprovable. I mean, it's it's still compelling, but I'm just saying it's just it's just not something that's given to um, being proven, if that makes sense. That does make sense. What do others think about that? Sorry, that doesn't make sense. What? Can you, can you repeat that? 
Um, basically, if we say that something exists because it's produced by power, because we talk about it or we do things in relation to it, and that's what makes it come into existence, right? So um, you can't really prove that that's true because um, you can't prove that there are things that don't exist because we don't talk about them because power doesn't produce them. In other words, you'd have to find an example of something that isn't talked about, that there are no relations with it in order to prove that something exists because there are relations with it. So it's essentially, it's, it's unprovable. It's an unprovable contention. It doesn't make it wrong. I'm just saying that it's, uh, it, it's unprovable. Do you think proof is the right language, the right epistemological position to be making sense of this? Um, because he's talking about real life things, real categories that do affect people. He's talking about power and the way that they actually are affected. Um, um, and he's trying to say that, um, uh, that it's, not it's a the opposite of it not existing in a real sense. Maybe proof's not the best word, but it's, it's not... It's not verifiable, I suppose. Right. Um, as much as it makes not, sense. But yeah. he's not a positivist, so it doesn't have to be verifiable. He doesn't adopt that epistemological approach. And if you do adopt that epistemological approach, you will not be able to make sense of him and you'll reject everything he has to say, which plenty of people do, but they're not compatible. So a positivist epistemology is an epistemology, a theory of knowledge that believes that the only things that we can know are true facts that we can verify using scientific methods, which is what Ruckmill is suggesting, right? But that sort of um, is a very unpopular epistemology in the social sciences and has been since Foucault, since before Foucault, but particularly since Foucault, right? Because it implies that there is a single truth and that the social world is a series of facts rather than a series of meanings and interpretations that we have to make sense of in one form or another, right? So that's what I mean when I say I don't, if you want to adopt the language of proof and verifiability, that's a positivist language. That's, that's the language of an, a positivist epistemology, which he was absolutely departing from. And in fact, that was kind of his whole point. His positivism kind of suggests, for example, that sexuality is an objective fact, Right, that we can just measure it, and plenty of people have tried to do that. I don't know if any of you have ever watched Masters of Sex, that um, drama series about um, the masters who were these scientists who measured sex in a laboratory, right, during the 1960s. So, so that you know, that, that sort of suggests an idea of the world that um, that you and I, Rachmil, could both watch the same people doing the same thing and come to exactly the same conclusion. And most social researchers don't really believe that. Um, that, you know, an interpretivist epistemology of some description, and there are very lots of different varieties, that holds that the world is made, the social world is made up of, you know, meaning, and that meaning can only ever be interpreted. They can't be verified. Like um, what I mean to say is that even if we are talking subjectively and not objectively, um, even if we talk subjectively, so then, for example, um, in order to prove, in order to ver, in some degrees to verify his theory, we should be able to look at somewhere that wasn't affected by the Victorian era, that wasn't affected by these ideas and see I understand today's ideas what you're saying. But what I'm saying is that verification is the wrong objective. Oh, okay, right. Like if you want to verify it 
then that suggests that you're subscribing to a positivist epistemology. And if you are committed to that, you will never buy Foucault because he's incompatible with that, right. which is, it's a legitimate position. It's definitely not one that I hold and you would have to defend it pretty hard because it's very, it's unpopular in the social sciences, but it's not, um, it's not, um, it hasn't been completely done away with. So what would Foucault, Foucault have to say about, for example, a, um, uh, a different culture or a different society that d doesn't have sexuality uh, as we know it? Yeah. Um, so as I said earlier, he was interested in a regime of practice which is defined by time and space. So he was looking specifically at sexuality in yeah. Europe between the Victorian era and, um, you know, Freud. So he doesn't have anything to say about another culture that may or may not have any such thing as sexuality because he hasn't studied it. He would say you have to go study it. You have to go look at what are the particular forms of power and the products of power. Now now it's, it's tying together with the whole analytic. Everything's coming together now, actually. It's making more sense. <laughs> yeah. But it's good to ask these questions because this, this idea of verification... You know, we discussed this way back in week two, that it's a really scientific idea that is deeply, deeply embedded in our culture, by which I mean like broadly white Australian culture, right? Um, we, it's what we typically hold. We hold objectivity and a lack of bias and all of these things. We hold these up as the gold standard of knowledge, right? If it's verifiable and provable, then it must be true. And Foucault, asks, he, he's asking us to question that. So I'm going to skip the one on freedom and, and subjectivity and I'm going to go straight to power and truth, right, because it's a good segue. If we've got time, I'll come back to subjectivity, right? So one of Foucault's most influential ideas is this idea of power knowledge, power backslash knowledge as one word. I'll pop it in the chat box the way it's written. Right, so he deliberately writes it like that. I'd strongly discourage you from using a backslash in your academic writing because usually it's an indication that you couldn't be bothered deciding on which word was the best one. Um, but in this case, it's a deliberate, um, it's a deliberate conjoining of those two terms. And he's trying to convey the deeply interconnected relationship between the two. So for him, power creates knowledge and knowledge induces the effects of power. So power creates knowledge and in turn, knowledge induces, like it brings about the, the effects of power. Gemma? Yeah. You looked like you were about to say something and I just wanted to... Pounce. Oh, no, I wasn't going to say something. I was just being like, yeah, interesting. <laughs> Thinking, right, sorry. Nope, fine. Um, okay. So one of, the, one of the kind of empirical themes that emerges again and again in all his books, all his specific studies of particular regimes of practice is what were the forms of knowledge that were produced and circulating here, right? So in psychiatry there are several forms of knowledge that are really important, right? 
One is the particular kinds of records that the psychiatrist or the psychoanalyst keeps about her patient, right? Detailed, detailed records. That's a particular form of knowledge, those actual records. I mean the physical and specific records. Not in any abstract sense, I mean the physical actual records, right? There's also, many of you will know, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. What's that? It's like a list of all the mental illnesses and what symptoms and all that constitutes yeah. that. Yeah. All the disorders, that is the actual word, the disorders, meaning the things that are out of order, the things that are abnormal. Anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, bipolar, um, et cetera, et cetera. Various things used to be in that. Homosexuality, for example, right? So it changes over time. I don't know what volume we're on now, but it's a very classic example when you first come to Foucault to think about the DSM as a form of power knowledge, right? It is presented within the field of psychiatry as Rachmiel, a verifiable objective piece of knowledge, right? And it has always been treated like that, especially, you know, like it's shifting a bit now. Nonetheless, it changes all the time. Certain things get added, certain things get removed, certain symptoms get added, other symptoms get removed, which suggests that there perhaps is no objective verifiable list of what is in and out of order when it comes to the human mind and the human experience. Nonetheless, as a form of knowledge, it is responsible for some extraordinary forms of power that circulate, right? So that extends from being made to feel like you might be disordered or abnormal to being physically restrained in the psychiatric hospital because you fit the definition of one of the disorders in the manual and everything in between. Right. In turn, all of the um, psychiatric notes and observations and so on that get taken by patients over time, they all contribute to the next edition of the manual. So these forms of knowledge, they kind of continually reproduce each other. And they enter these circuits of power that are always producing effects effects of like normality and deviance, effects of being put in a psychiatric ward and being able to live at home, effects of being, you know, stigmatised and not, effects of getting treatment or not, right? That's what he means by power knowledge that these things are deeply, deeply imbricated with each other. Kaylin, what happened to you? Your laptop ran out of battery. Come and sit next to me. Okay. Um, I was like, we've lost someone. Who is it? But I felt your presence was still here, so I wasn't too concerned. Okay. So, um, do you need a pen and paper? Yeah. Um, so 
Foucault did not believe, you know, and I really don't think there's any evidence that we should either. The DSM is a perfect example, as are the ethnic categories that I'm writing about in my book. They also changed every decade and every census, for example. Um, it's never possible to arrive at an objective or stable truth about anything, about how many ethnic groups there are in Kenya, about what is a disordered or ordered mental state, what is normal or abnormal, what is criminal or, you know, civic. Nonetheless, our society constantly has some version of those ordering principles and that they are intimately connected to the forms of knowledge that we produce and reproduce about them. Does that make sense? Many of you will have personally experienced this, like anyone who's ever had a mental health care plan, you know, they make you do that dumb quiz. Like I suffer from anxiety, and so I have done those. And um, you always have to tell them exactly how anxious you are so they can keep a little record and make sure that after however many sessions you've had some improvement, God forbid you didn't, you know, those forms of knowledge they exercise power over the possibilities that you have. And importantly, not just in one way, right? It's tempting to go, oh, these forms of knowledge, they just set people up as deviant and abnormal. They also provide access to mental health care, right? So a Foucauldian approach is interested in what are the varied effects? They are very rarely always good or bad. Right, but his point is that there is no objective or stable truth. There's no capital T truth, right? That's what he refers to. Capital T truth is a positivist idea that you can measure the world and that Andrew and I, when we observe the same thing, will come up with exactly the same conclusion. He, but there are small T truths, which are the things that we collectively come to understand as true. Right, so some people think that this makes him an epistemological relativist, right? Anything is true, it just depends on your perspective. There's something in that, right? Maybe that's fair, like that's something that we can certainly sort of discuss. Um, but I don't think that using that as a kind of throwaway, like I'm done with him then, is it's not really taking full account of what he's offering us with this proposition. So he says in Truth and Power, page 131 of my version, truth isn't outside power or lacking in power, small t truth. It is not outside power and it is not lacking in power. Truth, page 132, is to be understood as a system of ordered procedures for the production, regulation, distribution, circulation, and operation of statements. I'll read that again. It's a system of ordered procedures for producing, regulating, distributing, circulating, and operating statements. So the statement, 
if you have felt hopeless for, you know, more than whatever it is, two weeks every day, then you are depressed. You have clinical depression, right? So that's the statement in the, I don't know if that's exactly what it is, but that's the statement in the DSM, right? What counts as true is that that statement has been produced by a professional body of psychiatrists. It is that truth is regulated by a series of rules around the kind of evidence required to make such a statement. Randomized control trials, various kinds of experiments, certain statistical data, etc. It is to be circulated through this manual and this manual, there's like this rule in the, in the industry, in the profession, that the manual is the source of that truth. And so whatever is in the manual, even when it changes in the next edition counts as the truth. Foucault says, when we, when we want to understand the relationship between knowledge and power, we need to look at the whole apparatus that makes that statement true. And in doing so, we might locate some things that we think we would rather change. And in that sense, he is a relativist. He's not claiming there is a system for ordering the production, distribution, circulation, operationalization of knowledge that is the right one. He doesn't claim there is a right one. What he claims is that our job is to be constantly attentive to the nature of that system and to what is going on in it and constantly vigilant about where there might be things that need to be changed. One way of doing that is by looking at some of the effects that are produced by those forms of power knowledge. For example, stigma, marginalization. Those are effects that we might observe and be concerned about that might trigger us to say, what's going on here and work backwards through looking at the forms of power knowledge that have produced that effect. And many, many, many people have of course done that. There are gazillions of critiques of the DSM out there. And many psychiatrists and psychologists and professionals who don't subscribe to it as an ultimate truth. Even though in their practice, they have to constantly refer to it. If they wanna prescribe medicine for someone, they have to give them a diagnosis in line with the DSM. Etc. So they reproduce it, but they also often contest it in little ways here and there. And that is typical of the kind of power that Foucault is examining. It's never absolute and total. It doesn't settle once and for all the nature of truth. It's always being kind of shifted, but it's not getting shifted towards some ultimate place of freedom. It's just being shifted into a different configuration of power. Maybe a better one, maybe one that has effects that we're more comfortable with. Does Foucault think that knowledge always has to have power? Yes. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That was the easiest question I've been asked all day. Not very often I can just give you a categorical yes or no. But yes, he says there is no there is no form of knowledge that is free or outside of power. 
because because the way it sounds is that um, the knowledge is produced by people as a group and and therefore they create this knowledge and it sort of has power but but um, isn't it true to say that an individual who let's say I don't know drop him in the middle of the Amazon um, surviving on his own and he observes the way that the birds fly I mean what power is there in his knowledge I mean is there ever a circumstance where someone where we study the social world in by looking at someone who lives alone in the Amazon with no social contact? Uh, I mean, there are people who like to, I don't know, um, cut themselves off from society and technology and live on their own and all that sort of thing. And they generate their own forms of knowledge, I suppose. Um, I mean, I'm sure there's power there somewhere. I'm just struggling to see it. I mean, there's power in why they went to live on their own in the middle yes. of nowhere. Probably because they but they're felt probably producing like knowledge as well. Sorry. I... Yeah. So probably someone who does that, I I occasionally contemplate doing that. Um, because you feel like a misfit. You feel like a misfit because you don't fit in the order of the society in which you find yourself. Right. So yes, you're absolutely 100% right about that. Do they? Is there power in the forms of knowledge that they produce? Um. My answer to that is that I don't think Foucault would care about that question. So sometimes um, if you find yourself asking this question and you find yourself getting tied up in knots, it's because the question and the approach are not a good, they're not a happy marriage. You know, remember we talked at the beginning of the semester about how, trimester about how theory is only useful to the extent that it helps us, right? I don't think Foucault helps us make sense of um, a hermit, except maybe to understand why they chose to become a hermit. So, you know, we could continue to try and think through that problem, but I just don't think it's taking us anywhere. Does that make sense? So, same with all the theorists. Like, they all, they give us something and then there are circumstances in which they give us nothing or they send us down the garden path. I think I think it's helpful, at least in terms of understanding the limits of the of the thinker, then yep. we can understand what they're actually saying. Yeah, yeah. He's definitely talking about social context, not just where. Um, so you use the phrase "there's people who make power." It is it is it's a very very important thing to understand about Foucault. He does not ascribe intentionality to people in that way. So he would say that we all collectively and mostly unconsciously or subconsciously reproduce the forms of power and that they're also reproduced by the material circumstances, the institutions, the discourses, etc. So it's not it's not the case that psychiatrists get together at their annual convention and decide they're going to declare homosexuals to be disordered, um, although I think that probably did happen. Um, but it's not only that the psychiatrist had the power to go and do that. There's a whole bunch of social norms, discourses and so on that enabled that to happen and which enabled it to persist and also which enabled it to change. And so, um, so for example, in the book that I'm writing, the most common explanation for political ethnicity is elite manipulation, right? That's what the political science literature it, that's the most common explanation, that elites, elite politicians benefit from manipulating the population to think primarily in terms of ethnicity when they vote. 
it means they don't have to develop um, policy platforms and so on, and they can continue to be corrupt and they have these patrimonial relationships, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think that that explanation is entirely wrong. That is absolutely a thing that happens, but I don't think it explains, I don't think it does enough to explain why people develop political subjectivities that are ethnic in nature. Right, which is why I'm writing this book. Like I wanna understand what are all the other sources of power and specifically power knowledge that enable that particular situation. Counting people ethnically in the census is one of them, right? I don't know how we got back onto that again. Um, okay. The other thing, this sort of connects a little bit with the idea of subjectivity, which we're not going to have time to get into. Let me read you this other quote from also from The Truth and Power. He says, the essential political problem for the intellectual is not to criticise the ideological contents supposedly linked to science or to ensure that his own scientific practice is accompanied by a correct ideology but that of ascertaining the possibility of constituting a new politics of truth. Right, so if all knowledge is power, right, and then all truth is an effect of power, that can, if you don't think through it properly, it can feel incredibly um, frustrating. Right, what are we supposed to do then in the face of that? And if there's no possibility of like freeing knowledge of power to reveal the real truth, then what are we supposed to do? Well, he says, we well, have to constitute a different politics of truth. It's like daily labor to do it, to shift and shift and shift and shift and kind of peel away at the edges of the norms around what counts as true until we start to think about things differently. And it works. It's not foolproof, but it's definitely, so, you know, the move in the social sciences from positivism to interpretivism is an example of that. Right, in the 60s and still in, in political science, for example, in, in conservative American political science, positivism still reigns. But um, interpretivism is far more influential in the rest of the world and also in most other disciplines, right? And so that means that we have sort of over time come to accept that it is not the sort of scientific study of observable facts that will help us best understand the world. And in fact, when we adopt that epistemology, all that we tend to do is reproduce a white male understanding of the world because it was predominantly white men who were doing all of that observing, right? But the academy has diversified, you know, and we've come to sort of understand that actually social meaning is, is produced and reproduced and we can't access it as a truth. We can only interpret it. And that has really shifted um, so many different things, an acceptance of Indigenous knowledges, a breakdown of the gender binary, um, you know, I mean, yeah, so many different things. The idea that Africans do not all have necessarily a tribe and that tribe is not necessarily like the best way to understand the social organisation of African societies. You know, 
all of those kinds of things were not that long ago held as fact. And since we've moved the rules around what counts as true, a bunch of other things are now accepted as knowledge and are able to kind of carry the associated forms of power. It's not perfect. We might be wrong about several things. It'll keep evolving. But for me personally, I find this a very compelling mission to consider the rules of what counts as true and what kind of effects they have and how they might change. Because, I mean, you're really getting to the root of it then if you're doing that, right? But you guys may not find that as compelling. Many people don't find that as compelling. Many people find that this is just unsatisfying and that at some point we are and should be able to determine some essence of truth. That's a legitimate argument. Next week we're going to read some people who make that argument. I'm going to stop there. You guys in Burwood are going to have to get out of the room in two minutes. What do people think? Um, I just think overall it's like super interesting. Like when I was doing the reading, I don't know, I was just kind of fascinated the whole time. And I think like that stands through this lecture. I was like, wow, that's so, like, it's the reading that like every two sentences I've gone, wow, that's so interesting. Yeah. I've never thought about it that way. That's kind of like my general response. But mm -hmm. in a more specific way, I think like what you're talking about with the power backslash knowledge thing mm -hmm. with the, like the case study of like mental disorder, mental illness. I think that idea that it's always changing and therefore there's no like big you know, teachers, I think that's really freeing in like some way. I think that's yeah. really like an exciting idea. I think that's why I like it so much. It's kind of freeing. So I do understand how you could get a bit like existentialist, like, mm -hmm. oh my God, nothing matters. But like, I don't know, it's kind of, it's kind of like, I don't want to say it's like absurdism, but it is kind of like, you know, uh, like to me, I view it in a positive way. Oh, you know, Nothing, yeah. nothing matters, but like, yeah, it's a freeing thing to me, if that makes yeah. sense. Yep, yep. I think many people found that a very freeing revelation that the DSM might not have them quite right, you know, might not understand everything about who they are, especially, you know, 30, 40 years ago when people, you know, they used to say hysteria, which was to do with like um, only happened to women and was like basically when your uterus took over your head, your brain, you know, that used to be in the DSM. People used to have forced hysterectomies as a result. So, yeah, the realisation that that's probably not right is a pretty good one in my view. Yeah. Rachmiel, where are you sitting with all this now? Oh, um I think even even before I read Foucault, I mean, I always uh, liked the idea of truth being subjective, right? Yeah. Um, um, I was very uh, fond of the idea that we should look at 
truth the way that people themselves see it. And in fact, that's exactly what my thesis tends to do, rather mm -hmm. than looking at um, top-down classifications of minorities, but rather how they spoke about themselves. Yeah. Like, who cares whether technically what they speak is a language or a dialect or a socialect or whatever, yeah. what they call it. Um, so that's something that, that has always been there. Um, what, I, what, I, what, what I do think, though, is that um, there are limitations to this the statement that all knowledge is, is power. That, I think, that is a little bit more, that's where it gets a little bit more iffy. I mean, the subjectivity of truth, I 100%, you know, that's just yeah. you know, something that I've believed for a long time. Uh, and, and his arguments for it are very, very, very uh, good and very compelling. It's the power, when the power comes into it, I think it gets yeah. a little bit more iffy. Yeah. 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 Probably need to let you guys go in Burwood because we overstayed our welcome there last week and I don't want to do that again. Um, someone else had to come in after us and we were talking too long. So Gemma and Rachmil, we'll see you guys later. Um, thank you. Um, if anyone else wants to share any other ideas, we can stick around for another couple minutes or questions. Can I ask a question? Um, so the power knowledge thing, mm -hmm. is he saying also that... Uh, like they can't, they both exist. So knowledge always has power. Yeah. Is he also saying that power always has like knowledge attached to it? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. So at the level of um, a regime of practice, you would always be wanting to know what knowledge is, is constituting this form of power. It's not the only thing that constitutes power. Okay, yeah. So but it is he a, does think other things. Yeah. Constitute power, not just knowledge. Yeah. Not okay, knowledge. yeah. Um, but it's a hugely important part of right. the way power, of the nature of power in any given regime of practice. Like he'll always, in all his books, he's always like, what is a form of knowledge here? What records are prisons keeping? What records are psychiatrists keeping? The confessional was a form of knowledge about sexuality, right? Like it becomes oh. these, these statements that get shared in the confessional box and he was really interested in what work that did. Mm. So yeah. what other things does he, I guess, analyse when he's looking at power as well? Mm -hmm. So as we said earlier, like relation between um, people, between knowledge. So but other things he would look at would be um, certain forms of subjectivity, right. kind of ways of being, um, behaviours and habits. Mm -hmm. Desires, institutions, rules, it's like a pretty broad mesh. Okay, yeah, yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Like that's not a definitive list. Yeah, no, okay. Yeah. Basically everything. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, cool, cool. And that's why he had to be specific, right? Because mm. if, if you just say everything is always power everywhere all the time, it's like, okay, that gives me zero insight into anything. Yeah. But if you can do a particular study of a particular place and time, mm. right, then you can, you can be alert to these different things and some will emerge as more important than others, you know, right? So certain, um, so in the context of sexuality, desire emerged as like a particularly important um, feature of that web of power. Does he also talk about, I guess, the power of himself in studying certain things? He's choosing to look at certain things, and that in itself. No. 
power. But he should, but he should have. Yeah, yeah. So next week, well, week after next week, we're going to read some critiques of Foucault and part of them get to this. So the biggest overall problem that most people have with Foucault is that um, if everything is power all the time, we where do we want to stand when we want to critique it? Like where is our normative ground? How can we say this is unfair or unjust or wrong, right? Um, and there's also attached to that is this issue of if everything is power all the time and my subjectivity is nothing but an effect of power, then where's my agency? How can I do anything? Mm, and how can you research the thing exactly. that you're saying is power? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes in postmodern theory, he's a postmodernist, this is referred to as the death of the author, mm. right? which is the idea that, um, you know, and in his later work, he got more sophisticated about this. He was a little bit blunt about it in his, some of his early work. The idea that um, everything is a product of discourse and only discourse. Right, so he's not interested in who wrote those census codes in 1948, right? Because he doesn't believe that any, in his extreme form and in an extreme interpretation, you could say he doesn't believe that any particular person has the power of interpretation, um, sorry, not interpretation, intentionality, free of power, right? I can't write anything that is free of the discourse in which I live and circulate, right? And in an extreme version, that sort of disowns any person of responsibility for anything mm. or agency, right? And so for some scholars, he's, he goes too far on that and he doesn't do enough to talk about individual agency. For others, there's ways of interpreting him that recuperate some agency. For others, you can add, and this is where I sit on it, you can add agency. Like, I don't think he gets it right, but I think you can add it without undermining his overall insight. Mm. What I'm yeah. doing in my book, right? So I'm looking at the discourses around, the discourses that existed that allowed census makers to count everyone by tribe in 1948, but also looking at the specific district commissioners who did it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, he would be less interested in that. He'd be like, oh, that specific district commission, that's whatever, it doesn't really matter. He could only do what was possible in that discourse. Yeah, but yeah, okay, yeah. I, I, I sort of think, I don't see why we have to choose. I think we can have both. Mm, yeah, because it still begs the question, how did he come up with his it does beg theory that. Exactly. that he's saying is different from it, yeah. So, there's no yeah. author and no agency and no originality. Yeah. 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 You're right yeah. to ask that question, Leah. That's a good question. Yeah. All right, we should go, lest anyone drop any other important insights that the others will miss out on. Um, so enjoy your Easter break, everyone. Remember, I am on leave next week, so I'll be uncontactable, but um, I'll see you the week after. And I'm going to have a ponder about what to do about Burwood technology-wise. So watch this space. I'll send an email. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Thank Thanks. you.